2. Rehearsals for his all-star game performance had been rocky. People feared that he wouldn't show on time to sing. He arrived late to the arena, disheveled and anxious. There are times when I like to think that I see America the way that Marvin Gaye saw it in the spring of 1970. After he buried Tammy Terrell, and after his brother came back from a bloody war, when Marvin stared at all of our country's mess and told Smokey Robinson that he couldn't sleep because God was using him to write the album that would become What's Going On. What's Going On is, more than anything, an album with few solutions. We are a world obsessed with proof of work, demanding results at every turn, even when we have little hope to tie ourselves to. I always appreciate what's going on as an album that asks first and holds no optimism that the answers will be what it's looking for. Even the album's most optimistic song, God is Love, feels like it's banking on a shaky hand at a poker table, trying to convince everyone of something it isn't certain of itself. What I imagine to be most difficult is the exact moment when you realize that your wealth and success will still not save you. To be black and understand that you are in a country that values these things, but will still speak of how you earned your death after you are gone far too soon. Blackness and labor have been inextricable in America for hundreds of years, but still, being reminded of that hovering truth can destroy a man who does not think of what he does as labor, a man who perhaps thinks it's not work if I'm bringing people joy. I think of all this reality arriving to Marvin Gaye at once in 1970, and he could not, in good conscience, continue as the same artist. I wasn't brought here, I was born, surviving punk rock long enough to find Afropunk. I don't remember the first time I heard a racist joke at a punk rock show. Rather, I don't remember the first time I was grabbed into a sweaty half-hug by one of the laughing white members of my Midwest punk scene and told don't worry about it. We don't think of you that way. I don't remember the first time I saw a teenage girl shoved out of the way so that a teenage boy her size, or greater, could have a better view of a stage. I don't remember the first time that I made an excuse for being a silent witness. I don't remember the first time I noticed the small group in the back corner of a punk show at the Newport Music Hall, one of the many venues that I fell in and out of love with in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, all of them, in some way, pushed out of the frenzied circle of bodies below, and the alleged loving violence that comes with it. I do remember the first time I became one of the members of that group in the back corner of shows. At 18, I hung in the back corner of the Newport and watched no FX with the rest of the kids who didn't quite fit, or at least became tired of attempting to fit. I looked around and saw every version of other, as I knew it. The black kids, the girls my age and younger, the kids most fighting with the complexities of identity. We sat back and watched while no FX tore through an exceptionally loud version of Don't Call Me White and watched below, as a monochromatic sea crashed against itself. There is nothing simple about this. What we're sold about punk rock is that anyone can pick up an instrument and go, something that we've seen proven time and time again by a wide number of awful bands. But even in a genre that prides itself on simplicity, the complexities of erasure and invisibility in punk rock go deep. It is hard to hear the word brotherhood without also thinking of the weight behind what it carries with it in this country, and beyond. When I still hear and read the punk rock scene referred to as a brotherhood, I think about what it takes to build a brotherhood in any space. Who sits at the outskirts, or who sits at the bottom while the brotherhood dances oblivious and heavy at the top? In the punk landscape, we are often given imagery that reflects the most real truths of this scene, the exclusion of people of color, of women, of the queer community, and that exclusion being sometimes explicit, 
sometimes violent, but almost always in direct conflict with the idea of punk rock as a place for rebellion against, among other things, identity. A friend recently posed a question to me, similar to one that Lester Bangs wrote about being posed to him, in 1979's The White Noise Supremacists. Well, what makes you think the attitudes of racism and exclusion in the punk scene are any different from that of the rest of the world? The answer, of course, is that they aren't. Or at least it is all born out of the same system. In the 70s, the answer was perhaps easier to digest. That punk rock, born in part out of a need for white escape, just wasn't prepared to consider a revolution that involved color, or involved women as anything that the scene deemed useful. That, of course, also being a reflection of the time. Today, we sit back and watch seemingly evolved artists talk about tearing down these large political structures and uniting the masses, and making safe spaces for everyone who wants to come out and enjoy music, but the actual efforts to build and create these spaces fall extremely short, as evidenced, in one example, by Jake McElfresh being allowed to play Warp Tour. McElfresh has a now admitted history of preying on underage girls, a demographic that the touring music showcase predominantly caters toward. It is a luxury to romanticize blood, especially your own. It is a luxury to be able to fetishize violence, especially the violence that you inflict upon others. To use it as a bond, or to call it church, or to build an identity around it while knowing that everyone you can send home bloody will not come back for revenge. To walk home bloody. To walk home at night. At the time of writing this, a video is circulating of a black man being killed by police, on camera. Before this, there was another black man. And a black boy. And black women vanishing in jail. And black trans women vanishing into the night. I do not blame punk rock for this. I instead ask to consider the impact of continuing to glorify a very specific type of white violence and invisibility of all others in an era where there is a very real and very violent erasure of the bodies most frequently excluded from the language, culture, and visuals of punk rock. I ask myself who it serves when I see countless images showing examples of why punk rock is a family, images with only white men. It does no good to point at a neighborhood of burning houses while also standing in a house on fire. It is true, now, the flames in the house of punk may climb up the walls more slowly than, say, the flames in the Fox News building. But the house is still on fire. Too often, the choice in punk rock and DIY spaces for non-white men is a choice between being tokenized, or being invisible. Having experienced both, I chose the latter, and then chose to stop going to as many shows altogether. Which isn't mentioned in sadness. To watch the casual packaging of a violence that impacts and affects bodies that look like yours, and to watch that violence knowing that you have no place in it, other than to take it in, feels similar to being black every other place in America. After reading a few poems about being black at punk rock shows in Boston a few months ago, a black woman came up to me. We talked about our experiences in our respective scenes, how we eventually got less excited about them, and gravitated toward the Afropunk festival where the music may not be rooted in the short-slash-fast-slash-loud assault of sound that permeated my Midwest upbringing, the dreamt of ethos of punk is there. The idea of finding your own tribe, and keeping the circle open. An idea that I think many traditional punk scenes struggle toward, or have forgotten about. In part because when you create the tribe, the concept of opening a circle to those who seem different never crosses your mind. When I left the last Afropunk festival I went to, 
I remembered that I wasn't alone. Afropunk by itself isn't going to save us, or dismantle a racist world, but if punk rock was born, in part, out of the need for white escape, Afropunk signals something provided for black escape from what the actions of white escape breeds. The fantasies that it, often violently, provides its young men with, and the people who suffer beneath those fantasies, vanishing. Like all dismantling of supremacy, punk, DIY, and like-minded scenes have to cut to the core, and rewire the whole operation. There has to be an urgency to this, the world demands it. There is no war, but for the one that is claiming actual casualties. It is outside. And the bodies all look the same. There is no option now but to be honest about that. Last year, I was at a brand new show. One where, in typical brand new fashion, they charged through half of their set and dragged through the back half. It was a hot night, and even hotter in the venue, a closed-in brick space with few windows. I stood upstairs, looking down. Halfway through sick transit Gloria. Glory fades, I noticed the only black kid in the pit had passed out. Likely due to heat, or the physical nature of the pit. As a few of us above pointed, to try and draw attention, I watched his peer step over him, some kicked him, in the pursuit to keep dancing. To maybe touch the edge of the stage that their heroes graced. The prone body of this black boy, unnoticed and consumed by noise, and moving feet already forgotten. It was jarring. Another example of how expendable the black body can be when in the way of needs that are greater than it, the range of those needs changing by the hour, or second. It was another image of black fragility and dismissal, of course not as harsh as videos of guns firing into black men, with a force feeding of mugshots we get when a dead victim is black. But it was a reminder that choosing invisibility means giving yourself over to what so many systems in this country already deem you. Punk rock, as it stands now, being no different. Eventually, as the song winded down, ironically with the line Die Young and Save Yourself, a line that I used to have scrawled on a notebook before I got older and started to quite enjoy living, or at least stopped finding death romantic, I watched the boy sit up, shake his head, and gingerly stand up. He looked around, and slowly made his way to the back of the venue. Like I did when I was his age. After the show, I aim to find him, to at least make eye contact. There is something powerful in someone who looks like you actually seeing you. I never caught up to him, and I don't know what I would have said if I did. I don't know how to be honest enough to say that there isn't a place for kids like us, so we need to make our own, and nothing is more punk rock than that. Nothing is more punk rock than surviving in a hungry sea of white noise. Under half-lit fluorescence, the wonder years and the great suburban narrative. It is a strange thing to grow up poor, or in any interpretation of the hood, and be in very close proximity to the suburbs, a short walk or bike ride away from a world that seems entirely unlike your own, a dream that you could be snatched from at any moment. As a curious kid, always fascinated by the idea of escape, I would sometimes meet my friends and ride our bikes to the edge of our neighborhood, into the blocks where the houses were taller. The sidewalks were more even underneath our bike tires, and the silence was a gift to a group of reckless and noisy boys, spilling in from a place where everything rattled with the bass kicking out of some car's trunk. We would ride our bikes with our dirty and torn jeans and look at the manicured lawns and grand entrances and the playgrounds with no broken glass stretched across the landscape. During the day in the summer, we were just kids there. Black, sure, 
but not particularly threatening or dangerous to all of the other kids who were, like us, trying to find a way to kill time while their parents were at work and school was out. And then, with the sun setting on another hot day, we would ride back a few blocks to our neighborhood's familiar skin, the language we knew, the songs we could rap along to, and the comfort that comes with not standing out. When I say it is a strange thing to live in close proximity to a world so vastly different than your own, I mean that it creates a longing within the imagination. You long for a place that you know only by its snapshots and not by the lives moving within them. It allowed me to fantasize, imagine a world where everyone was happy and no one ever hurt. The Wonder Years third album, Suburbia I've Given You All and Now I'm Nothing, released nearly five years ago as of 2016, takes its title from the Allen Ginsberg poem, America. The poem opens, America I've Given You All and Now I'm Nothing. America $2.27 January 17, 1956 I can't stand my own mind. America when will we end the human war? The poem, like most Ginsberg poems of its era, is sprawling and emotionally uneven, a meditation on the unrest of war's aftermath that is equal parts angry and humorous, confused yet determined. We meet the wonder years here in their truest form on the album opener, Came Out Swinging, a song that, even now, is a high-functioning album opener, an arm that reaches from the speaker and wraps around you, pulling you gently to the speaker's mouth. We find this Pennsylvania pop-punk band as we found Ginsburg in a different time. Not lost and anxious in the aftermath of actual war, of course, only war is war, but the anxiety on the album is palpable nonetheless. It is an album of return and escape and return and escape again. It feels, in tone and tension, like coming home for a summer after your first year of college, having tasted another existence and wanting more, but instead sleeping in your childhood room. Home is where the heart begins, but not where the heart stays. The heart scatters across states, and has nothing left after what home takes from it. I know the suburbs best by how they consumed the kids I knew in my teenage years, the punk kids, the emo kids, the soccer kids, the kids who came out to the basketball courts with the black kids to play the way they couldn't in their backyard. So many of us, especially teenagers, strive to be something we're not. Escape is vital, in some cases, as a survival tool. Once, I never knew how anyone who lived in a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood could be sad. Sometimes, when you know so much of not having, it is easy to imagine those who do have as exceptionally worry-free. Sadness, when you are truly being swallowed by it, can feel almost universal. Not the vehicle that drives you to the doorstep of sadness, and certainly not the way it manifests itself inside of you. But the sadness itself, the soaking feeling of it, is something that you know everyone around you has had a taste of. The kids who came to rap and punk shows in nice shoes, always fighting to stay out just a bit later, anything to keep them away from home, anything to keep them in a world unlike their own. This is the cycle we create and live through, we see the greener grass and then run to it. The first time I lost a friend, a true friend, to the unfamiliar violence of a bottle of pills, I wondered what it must be like to not feel like you were destined for death, but still want to arrive at it. And then another friend. And then another. A rooftop, a car crash. When you go to enough funerals in summer, you learn tricks, bring a lighter jacket, something that can be carried. Wear a shirt that you don't mind sweating through. Deep pockets to stash your tie after it gets taken off and your shirt buttons are loosened. 
I don't remember when my friends and I stopped asking the question of why? Around death. I understand what it is to be sad, even when everyone around you is demanding your happiness, and what are we to do with all of that pressure other than search for a song that lets us be drained of it all? The great mission of any art that revolves around place is the mission of honesty. So many of us lean into romantics when we write of whatever place we crawled out of, perhaps because we feel like we owe it something, even when it has taken more from us than we've taken from it. The mission of honesty becomes a bit cloudy when we decide to be honest about not loving the spaces we have claimed as our own. This is the work of suburbia. It isn't carried out with bitterness, but with a timeline of questions. Who is going to be brave enough to ask where home is, and seek out something else if they don't like the answer? And, yes, the songs that fall out of this process are as brilliant as any songs the pop-punk-slash-emo genre have ever seen. Local man ruins everything dresses up the grief in the center of the room until it becomes forgettable. Summers in PA could be about you and all of your friends in any summer where you all felt invincible. Don't let me cave in as a negotiation of distance, and home, and greater distance. The band was operating at a level of greatness they hadn't reached before that point. It's a jarring, emotionally honest undertaking that chooses interrogation over nostalgia's soft and simple target. The album ends with And Now I'm Nothing, the ultimate anchor, echoing a small plea of freedom, suburbia, stop pushing, I know what I'm doing, suburbia, stop pushing, I know what I'm doing. A lot of the people I knew who dismissed emo while the genre was at its peak did so because they believed emotions were things that should be sacred and unspoken, not screamed out to the listening masses. I push back against that, both in personal practice and as someone who has seen the other side of that coin, or known people completely eaten alive by the hoarding of sacred emotion. And, of course, we say the world doesn't care about your problems. We say that and we know that our problems aren't only our problems, and that there are people who need to know that their problems aren't only their problems. The glory of the wonder years, in suburbia and everything since, is that their mission seems to be entirely unselfish in scope. This is what, to me, has separated them from their peers in the genre, a willingness to own their shitty pasts and everything they entail without also trying to cash it in for points, without trying to be the smartest or most charming band in the room. I'm sad and I've hurt people and I'm a beautifully tortured survivor of my past is a hard thing to say out loud, or scream on a chorus, but it is the honest thing, which means it is the thing that I would rather have sitting in the room with me on the days I miss everyone. Suburbia is the first of a stunning trilogy of Wonder Years albums that all seem to be in conversation with each other. 2013's The Greatest Generation and 2015's No Closer to Heaven all sit in the same space. They are albums that are awash with questions, and content not providing any answers. They are all telling singular stories in their frantic urgency and emotion, Suburbia about the idea of home, Greatest Generation about the idea of growing up and leaving things behind, no closer to heaven about death and loss, all of them, particularly the first two, centered on the American suburban experience. All of them say, I'm sad like you are, and I can't promise to fix this, but we're going to be here together. I am still, always, a black kid from a black neighborhood, who once biked to the edge of the suburbs and then once loved my friends from the suburbs and then sometimes buried my friends from the suburbs. And even then, never understanding the interior of those lives beyond the angst-ridden stories that teenagers share, I never understood how a life that looked beautiful could be immensely sad. Where you live and grow up in America has very real implications, and that isn't to be ignored here. But I found myself, 
and still find myself, always considering the place I'm from and the pressure and expectations that come with that. I am proud to have survived where I'm from, and I happily keep it close to me. What the wonder years do best, first with suburbia, is kick a door wide open to the rest of us who admire the imagined life from afar. I listen to the wonder years, and I am back on my bike again, tearing through the even sidewalks and manicured lawns. The difference is that when I close my eyes and imagine this, I can see the houses now. I can see the lives inside. I can feel the unshakable and honest grief, thick in the air, as I bike home. All our friends are famous. My buddy Nick screamed in this metalcore band called Constellations because he couldn't really play an instrument and didn't want to learn, but he wanted to get laid at least close to as much as our other buddy Nick who wasn't in a band at all, but who had dark hair and boyish good looks, and a devil-may-care ambience that all the girls we hung around found irresistible. Constellations wasn't that good of a band and Nick wasn't that good of a frontman but the band still got gigs because during the slow season, the basement would let any band that can fill the place play a set and an argument can be made that when it comes to impressing a potential date, being some scene kid who knows the band might be better than actually being the scene kid in the band, because if you embarrass yourself, at least it won't be on a stage with everyone watching. Plus, all of our pals got drink tickets but only about half of them could drink, and so, in half-full venues full of our friends, we could live like brief and generous kings. Constellations cut an EP called Alpha right before the summer of 2008, and all of the songs sounded the same, but we still played it in our cars like it was hot shit because when would we ever get to hear one of our own dripping out of our car speakers? Constellations never sold out a show, but they did get to play The Basement in summer once, toward the end of the band's run in 2009 before Nick got kicked out of the band for not being a good enough screamer to justify the mental headaches he caused the so-called creative process. And at that summer show, they played their song Model T Drive By, which was maybe the only song that felt like it had real potential, or at least the one song that didn't sound like everything else. When the breakdown came, Johnny, who played guitar for the band, jumped directly into the thrashing of the pit, guitar still plugged in. Nick had, somehow, obtained a drumstick from some other band's setup, and was using it to orchestrate the violence in the pit, almost pulling the bodies from one side to the other like they were attached to a string at the drumstick's tip. For a moment, you could only hear Johnny's furious guitar playing, but you couldn't see him through the wave of arms and elbows swinging in every direction, enclosing him. The dude behind the bar at the basement, who drank heavily on the job and never made a sound during these shows except to let out the occasional skeptical or frustrated sigh, looked up from his second beer of the night, took stock of this brief and incredible madness, put his hand on my shoulder and said, now this is a fucking hardcore show. Constellations broke up a month later. Nick didn't get laid nearly as much as he thought he would. I found unused drink tickets in my pockets for months. 2. 21 pilots are innocent, after Lester Bangs. This is the truth. You are only from here if you're from here. Sure, the suburbs count, but only if you're winning. 21 pilots are from the suburbs. Not the suburbs like the ones my pals would skate through to score cheap weed. Tyler and Josh have never actually flown a plane. But there's only so many band names I guess. 21 pilots are good Christian kids. They make music that you don't have to love God to like. Finally, a Christian band that speaks to me. Well I guess. Reliant K wasn't bad. At least they had the decency to write something more than hooks. Reliant K is also from Ohio.
It's called the Bible Belt for a reason. Being religiously ambiguous sells more records. 21 pilots are at the top of the charts again. Some dirge about all their friends being heathens. Which friends? Tell me the clear truth. I know some of their old friends and they all seem all right to me. What's a heathen anyway? We're all innocent until our friends write songs about us. Was there at the Newport back in 11 when regional at best dropped and all the record labels packed the house? Felt like the whole city made it. Well I mean I guess it felt that way. If you count the suburbs and surrounding areas. Before that at Independence Day they put on a real show. Dragged a whole piano in an alley. Tyler jumped on top. No one in the alley could move. He parted the crowd with just a single finger. It was biblical probably. I walked home that night thinking they'd be the biggest band in the city. I walked home thinking they'd be here forever and never make it out. 3. The Sadness of Proximity When 21 Pilots won their first Grammy Award, winning in the Best Pop Duo Slash Group Performance category, beating out far more deserving songs, Rihanna's work, for example, they accepted the award with their pants down. Literally, on stage, Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn pulled down their pants, going into a drawn-out story from their younger days about watching the Grammy Awards without pants and dreaming of being there. It was charming, if you're into the type of charm the band has become known for, a Midwestern emotional affectation that both wins over parents and emotionally starved youth. There's something magical about all of your friends being in shitty bands with no intention of really making it. Columbus is like any other midsize but close to big city. It overflows with talented people who don't always know where to place their talent, and sometimes there are far less talented people who just have access to a stage and enough people to watch them. In the era right before 21 Pilots exploded, it didn't seem like any single band would ever approach the heights they eventually would, and so most everyone I knew rolled around in some trashy hardcore outfit, trying to make the nights a little more fun. The bands barely practiced, played shows to whoever could afford the five-buck cover, and sometimes took whatever change they made from the show and got everyone pizza. These people all had day jobs. Some would work waiting tables for two weeks just to afford the amp to plug a guitar into so that the band could stay together for another show or two. I'm not making a value judgment on one versus the other, when it comes to success and simply survival. I'm saying that I celebrated 21 pilots on that Grammy stage with their pants down, even though their song wasn't the best song in the category, and even though they saddled the speech with a corniness that only their Midwestern brethren could recognize underneath all of the attempted charm. I always hoped for Columbus, Ohio, to have a band make it big, and 21 Pilots sit as one of the biggest bands in the world. So I feel guilty when I say that I wish it could be someone other than them. Someone who didn't feel so intensely manufactured, or line-towing. Someone who knew their way around more than just a catchy hook. I'm proud of them because I watched them from their early days, and I'm hard on them because I watched them from their early days. The closest I'll get to knowing real rock stars were my friends in summer, before record labels came to town looking to pluck the next big thing. Constellations was a shit band, but they were a shit band that was a labor of love for a few kids I cared about deeply, in a scene full of kids that I cared about deeply, just trying to afford whatever it would take to make it into a studio and put a few tracks together. A week after 21 Pilots won their Grammy, I found Alpha, the first Constellations EP. It was in an old CD book, wasting away with the rest of the dead technology of its time. I put it on in my car on a long drive back to Columbus. 
When the first song hit, I remember the smile on Nick's face as he burst into our friend's apartment with the CDs for the first time. How we all listened to every track three times over. How we told ourselves that we loved it. How it didn't matter whether or not we did. The Return of the Loneliest Boys in Town Cute is what we aim for is a band from Emo's mid-2000s boom, when any kids who met in high school and had long hair were getting signed to Fueled by Ramen after Blink-182 and Fallout Boy and a handful of other bands made good enough for there to be a run on groups that might be able to cash in on a hit album or two. Their name is clunky and embarrassing, but it's mostly because they listened to too many emo albums that had exhaustingly long song titles and thought they'd cut out the middleman. They weren't as endearing and fun as some of the other mid-2000s bands. Hello Goodbye also had a corny name, but at least they had the good sense to play synthesizers and bring beach balls to their concerts. That particular era of emo was all about kids who were self-aware enough to know that they were the joke. Cute is what we aim for pretended to think they were the joke, but they seemed to want to be taken seriously with their sprawling songs about heartbreak and distance. Their first album, 2006's The Same Old Blood Rush with a New Touch, had no depth and felt entirely contrived, like a band trying on a bunch of clothes that someone told them they should be wearing, even though all of the shirts are too big. Still, I sang along to Curse of Curves at enough house parties in 2006 to make the record a worthwhile purchase in the sea of emo albums that flooded the summer of 2006, but were forgotten by winter. After another album, a handful of lineup shuffles, and a lengthy hiatus, Cute is What We Aim For returned in the summer of 2016 to tour, playing the full same old Blood Rush album in its entirety, honoring its 10th anniversary. This was an odd choice, and felt explicitly like an attempt at a money grab. The album carried no memorable hits, peaked at a meager number 75 on the charts, and was critically panned. Still, my fascination getting the best of me, and my deeply uninterested partner out of town, I made the trip to see them when they came through Hamden, Connecticut, a college town filled with early 20s kids who, in most cases, wouldn't be able to pick the band out of a lineup. The venue, which I entered about 10 minutes before showtime, was close to Baron. The problem with Same Old Blood Rush is the problem with a lot of emo albums from its era, and why most emo bands don't drag out their old albums in their entirety. One of the first lines you hear on the album is, in every circle of friends there's a horror, courtesy of the song Newport Living, and the album builds around a single common theme, bitterness, most commonly aimed at an imagined woman who has wronged the band in some way. This is a common trope in all music, of course, but it took on a more visceral tone in the second and third waves of emo. In the early 2000s, the first albums by bands like Taking Back Sunday, Brand New, and Fall Out Boy, while stunning in many ways, also acted as revenge fantasy. The theme, in these albums and beyond, revolved around summoning the girl, and then wishing for ill to befall her as a punishment for heartbreak. Punishment rarely doled out by the man dreaming it up, but by some other circumstance, a car crash, choking on a meal, being attacked by an animal. It was, for me, very in the moment, something that I did myself in my teens from behind the security of a keyboard or behind a pen. It's in the spirit of male loneliness to imagine that someone has to suffer for it. Same old blood rush takes this approach, but with less direct and explicit violence, and more of an angle that feels like the band is in a high school hallway, spreading rumors about the girl who slept with them and didn't call the next day. This leads to incessant binary moral judgments based more on gender than actual judgments. 
The hook before the first chorus in Newport Living is if you lie, you don't deserve to have friends, repeated on loop. Curse of Curves bemoans attractive women who just can't keep up with the band's intellect. So does Lyrical Lies. So does There's A Class for This, with a hint of even more boastful arrogance, I may be ugly, but they sure love to stare, the kind of lyrics that sound like things you tell yourself after rejection. The Fourth Drink Instinct is a messy narrative about a young girl being taken advantage of by a man while drunk, but quickly turns into a song blaming the girl for drinking in the first place. In the place of explicit bursts of violent fantasies, the album instead opts for a low and consistent hum of violences, the ones that seem more logical to someone who might also be sad, who might also want to turn their loneliness into a weapon without having it actually look like a weapon. In Hamden, the crowd has filled out a bit more, but barely. The band is stalling, waiting for more bodies to get into the room. You can tell, because it is easy to see them shuffling backstage, a member poking a head out every now and then. This is, in part, no fault of their own, Hamden is not New York City or even Pittsburgh. I wouldn't have crossed state lines for this show, and was amazed to see that it was happening at all. For a 15-minute drive and a $10 ticket, I could be easily convinced to see if there was any residual magic that my desire for nostalgia could drag up. When the band finally comes out and plays through Newport Living and there's A class for this, it becomes obvious that they aren't invested. The crowd of maybe 25 tries, a guy next to me nodding along to risque and trying to sing all of the words stops himself in the middle of the medically speaking you're adorable, and from what I hear you're quite affordable that opens the chorus. He looks around my age, both of us at the start of our thirties. We were perhaps both heartbroken a decade ago, at the dawn of our twenties, and looking for somewhere to place our pain. I feel this, the way I've aged and the loves and losses I've suffered in that aging, hanging over the room. It makes the display of dragging this particular album back out of the closet at first fascinating and then comically uncomfortable. There are endless ways that we have found and will find to blame women for things, particularly when it prevents us from unraveling our own unhappiness. But with Cute is what we aim for, all of its members either in their 30s or late 20s, standing on a stage and weaponizing decade-old bitterness doesn't exactly echo to the corner of nostalgia that I thought it would. Even in the album's catchier moments, like a very sharp performance of Curse of Curves and a slightly warmer acoustic version of the album's best song, Teasing to Please, watching the show feels like being a senior in college and going back to hang out in the high school parking lot. Halfway through the show, I ask myself what I expected. I think I was hoping for the band to come out and play revised versions of their old songs, less bitter, less explicit in their hatred of the women they've built out of thin air and been broken by. Twisting anger over heartbreak into something, well, cute, is easier for some genres than others. In emo, particularly during its heyday of attractive frontmen who fancied themselves poets, the misogyny was seen more as process than problem. Who among us, regardless of gender, hasn't scrawled something in the silence of a notebook about an ex-someone? It's a part of the coping, at least to a point. The problem is one of audience, though. The problem is the one of the notebook becoming public, sung to thousands. The problem is one of men being, largely, the only ones doing the singing. And, ultimately, the problem becomes when those men don't age beyond the adolescent heartbroken temper tantrums that we all have before we learn better and start to know better. It's not a measure of being morally superior to this band on stage, or not failing in my own politics around sadness, gender, and anger. 
but it's the difference between trying to chip away at the emotional debt one has accrued versus piling on top of it. At moments in the show, I felt like I was exiting my current body and watching myself from through my younger eyes, wondering if this is what it was always going to come to. Returning to the bomb for an old wound, a shame that I once decided to wear it. Though I didn't know at the time I arrived at the cute is what we aim for show in Hamden, a few days earlier, lead singer Sean Hasekian made the news for weighing in on Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist who got a decidedly light sentence for his crime. Rape culture isn't a thing, for real, Hasekian wrote on Facebook. Playing the victim seems to fit the narrative, he said. In my 29 years I've yet to encounter a human who is looking to rape someone, look into the actual statistics and get back to me. It was a terrible and ill-informed take, one that came from someone who seemed to have very little understanding of the world. It was slow to pick up news, in part because it was a Facebook comment, and in part because the band's fading relevance made it so that few people cared. When I found out about it, googling the band in the dark of my office after the show, it was both stunning and not. It was a stance that directly echoed the band's entire history. By the time the story gained traction, Hasekian already issued a toothless apology, thanking people for educating him on the topic of rape culture before taking the stage to sing a song about a young girl, drinking so much that the men around her just can't help themselves. Before the encore, most of the crowd leaves, but I stay, the guy who gave up on singing lyrics still sticking around next to me. As the break before the encore stretches out, we look at each other, and he says the first words that he said to me all night. Shit, man. I dunno. I got a wife and a daughter now. This ain't like it was when we were young, is it? I smile, and shake my head. No. No, it isn't. Brief notes on staying slash slash no one is making their best work when they want to die. I don't mean sadness as much as I mean the obsession with it. Once, on the wrong edge of a bridge, a boy I knew who played songs let his feet slip off. I found a tape of his after he was gone, and the music sounded sweeter, or at least I told myself it did. What I really want to do is say that life is impossible, and the lie we tell ourselves is that it is too short. Life, if anything, is too long. We accumulate too much along the way. Too many heartbreaks, too many funerals, too many physical setbacks. It's a miracle any of us survive at all. I know that I stopped thinking about extreme grief as the sole vehicle for great art when the grief started to take people with it. And I get it. The tortured artist is the artist that gets remembered for all time, particularly if they either perish or overcome. But the truth is that so many of us are stuck in the middle. So many of us begin tortured and end tortured, with only brief bursts of light in between, and I'd rather have average art and survival than miracles that come at the cost of someone's life. There will always be something great and tragic to celebrate and I am wondering, now, if I've had enough. I am, of course, in favor of letting all grief work through the body and manifest itself creatively. But what I'm less in favor of is the celebration of pain that might encourage someone to mine deeper into that unforgiving darkness, until it is impossible for them to climb out. I'm less in favor of anything that hurts and then becomes theater, if that theater isn't also working to heal the person experiencing pain. I, too, am somewhat obsessed with watching creations that feel like work. I am less drawn to the artist who at least appears to make it look easy. But our best work is the work of ourselves, our bodies and the people who want us to keep pushing, 
even if the days are long and miserable and even if there are moments when the wrong side of the bridge beckons you close. All things do not pass. Sometimes, that which does not kill you sits heavy over you until all of the things that did not kill you turn into a single counterforce that might. No matter what comes out of a person in these times, the work that we make when we feel like we no longer want to be alive is not the best work if it is also not work that, little by little, is pushing us back toward perhaps staying, even if just for a moment. What I'm mostly saying, friends, is that I've lost too much. And everything sounds good when you know it was the last thing a person would ever make. All of the words sit more perfect on the page when they are the last words. What I'm mostly saying, friends, is that I am sad today. I am sad today, and I may be sad tomorrow. But I watched a video where rappers hung out of the roof of a car and threw money in slow motion, and it made me briefly consider another type of freedom. I am sad today, but I held, in my hands, a picture of me on a day where I was not sad. In it, the sunlight leaked over my face in a city I love, and my eyes were wide and eager. I am sad yesterday, and I might be sad tomorrow, and even the day after. But I will be here, looking for a way out, every time. Staying is not always a choice, and I have lived and lost enough to know that. But the way I think about grief is that it is the great tug-of-war, and sometimes the flag is on the side you don't want it to be on. And sometimes, the game has exhausted all of its joy, and all that's left is you on your knees. But, today, even though I am sad, my hands are still on the rope. I am making my best work when my hands are on the rope, even if I'm not pulling back. Life is too long, despite the cliché. Too long, and sometimes too painful. But I imagine I have made it too far. I imagine, somewhere around some corner, the best part is still coming. Searching for a new kind of optimism. It is so easy to be hopeful in the daytime when you can see the things you wish on. But it was night, it stayed night. Knight was striding across nothingness with the whole round world in his hands. Zora Neale Hurston My friends and I were wrong about a whole lot of things in 2016, and I imagine you and your friends were, too, if the concert of all our cages rattling in unison in our respective corners of the internet is any indication. I was once content with being wrong about the big things, as long as I could cloak myself in hope for something better. But at the end of a year in which I was wrong about almost everything, nothing about that felt worthy of praise, so I opted for silence. A few days before Christmas, I drove to Provincetown, Massachusetts, at the very tip of Cape Cod. A beach town consumed by tourists in the summer months, it is largely silent in the winter. You might see a few committed locals, a handful of artists, a small mass of people shifting from bar to bar and tripping down Commercial Street swaying and drunkenly singing into the calm. It gets dark early there, on the very northeastern edge of the country. On the day I arrived, it was the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. At 4 p.m., it was pitch black. There's a particular kind of darkness that hangs over a space that's surrounded by nothing but an ocean, a vast, swallowing darkness. It's the kind that makes the memory of light seem hopeless, impossible. In a Cape Cod record store two days before Christmas, I picked up a copy of the 1977 Richard Hell and the Voidoids album Blank Generation. Richard Hell holds open a leather jacket on the album cover, the words you make me underscore scrawled across his chest. I thought about the old Lester Bangs profile, from shortly after this album came out, 
in which Hal prattled on about how much he wanted to die. Later, re-reading that profile, I found that Hal wasn't searching for death as much as he was looking for a way to halt feeling entirely. I find myself personally far removed from such longing, and I also find it worth pointing out that Hal is still alive in 2017. In his more recent writings, he seems resigned to the wisdom that can come with age. So does Pete Townsend, long after he hoped to die before he got old. But even if I don't long for destruction the way these men once did, I understand how it feels to desire that kind of longing. All emotion, when performed genuinely and facing an audience, can be currency. Sadness and fear are, perhaps, the two biggest bills in the billfold, and what was haunting about both Townsend and Hell in their youth is that their death wishes seemed believable. They didn't sound like friends of mine joking on social media about wanting an asteroid to take us all out, theirs wasn't a hope for human extinction, just the extinction of the self, the feelings that come with having to exist in uncertain times. There is plenty of rock optimism to counter this, of course, from Bruce Springsteen's insistence on overcoming through labor to Tom Petty's slick nostalgia as a survival tool. But when you grow up with punks, the kind of kids who listened to Richard Hell records and then found more like that, it's easy to feel some distance from the kind of optimism that we're taught to lean into during difficult times. Even now, I'm not as invested in things getting better as I am in things getting honest. The week of Christmas, I drove alone into the dark, and I did that, in part, knowing that the dark was going to be there when I arrived, knowing that it would still be my work to find something small and hopeful within. My friends say that I've gotten too cynical, and I suspect this might be true, judging by how quickly many people get exhausted when talking to me about the future. I am working on it, truly. A therapist tells me to challenge my inner cynic, but when I do, I simply find another inner cynic behind that one. I am, it turns out, a nesting doll of cynics. There is no evidence to suggest that humans are going to become any more kind this year, or more empathetic, or more loving toward each other. If anything, with our constant exposure to all of one another's most intense moments, the bar for what we seem prepared to tolerate gets lower with every second we spend screaming into each other's open windows. Yes, without question, 2016 was a year that dragged on more heavily than most before it. It felt exhausting, and like it would never end. But all past logic was pulling us toward that breaking point, a year that finally pushed us to the edge. And all logic in this moment points to another year that might not feel quite as long but will surely be just as trying. I have been thinking, then, about the value of optimism while cities burn, while people are fearing for their lives and the lives of their loved ones, while discourse is reduced to laughing through a chorus of anxiety. A woman in a Cape Cod diner the day after Christmas saw me eyeing the news and shaking my head. She told me that things will get better, and I wasn't sure they would, but I nodded and said, they surely can't get any worse, which is the lie that we all tell, the one that we want to believe, even as there are jaws opening before us. I'm not sold on pessimism as the new optimism. I need something that allows us to hope for something greater while confronting the mess of whatever all this blind hopefulness has driven us to. America is not what people thought it was before, even for those of us who were already familiar with some of its many flaws. What good is endless hope in a country that never runs out of ways to drain you of it? What does it mean to claim that a president is not your own as he pushes the lives of those you love closer to the brink? What is it to avoid acknowledging the target but still come, ready, to the resistance? The greatest song on Blank Generation is the title track, 
on which Richard Hell shouts, it's such a gamble, when you get a face. I laughed when I heard that line in an empty room in the seeming always darkness of the Cape in winter. In 2016, the gamble returned not only a bad face, but a hall full of mirrors turned on the faces of everyone who avoided looking deeply into those mirrors in past years in the name of hope. The day before leaving the Cape, I ran into a man I had been seeing in the street since the day I arrived. He was often drunk but very kind. He stopped me on my run and asked if he could make a call on my phone. I didn't have it with me, and I muttered out an awkward response, littered with too much information about not carrying it while I ran. From the open door of a coffee shop, more news about Donald Trump blared from the television, flooding out into the street where we were standing. The man looked past me to the beach, drenched in grey and threatening clouds. We're all going to die, he said. Then he was gone. We are all going to die. That's true, though I hope I get a few more trips on this sometimes wretched ride. I have tasted enough of its highs to know that they're worth sticking around for, though not worth worshipping as a sole survival tool in the face of its lows. I've abandoned hopeless hope, but I am not rooting for the meteor. I'm still rooting for us, my people and their people and their people beyond that. I'm rooting for us to clean off the dusty mirror and look at the bad bet staring back. This is me challenging my inner cynic the best way I know how, taking a few lazy swings and seeing if I can tire him out in time to get back to whatever the real work may be this time. It is another new year, and most of my pals made it to the other side with me. Some of us called each other and heard each other's voices. Some sent blurry pictures, drowning in fluorescent light. Some of us made sure that those who weren't alone knew that they weren't alone. I have started other years at funerals, in hospital rooms, in studio apartments with my phone off entirely. So in spite of the newest realities that we must confront and stay uncomfortable with, I'm hoping that I get to stick around for a while. I am hoping, mostly, that we all get better at wishing on the things we need, even in darkness. Death becomes you, my chemical romance and ten years of the Black Parade. So fake your death or it's your blame. And leave the lights on when you stay. My chemical romance, fake your death. Act 1. In the fall of 2006, I was in the midst of typical early 20s purgatory. Having struck out during my initial pass at adulthood, and cloaked in a sadness that felt directionless, I moved back in with my father, back into my childhood bedroom. This is one of the more romantic failures, the one that takes you back to the place where you started and allows you to stare directly into the memories of a time when you were younger, with endless potential. Above my bed still hung my soccer jersey from my senior year of high school. In one of the nightstand drawers, there were still letters from high school friends, papers I'd written, pictures from the summer before college, the last summer of complete freedom that I would ever know. In this way, I was given a type of distance from the life I felt I couldn't succeed in. I wasn't a child again, but I was, certainly, reliving another life through new eyes. A total stereotype of early 20s apathy, I spent my time working a shit job at a dollar store in the neighborhood where I grew up, mostly because I could walk there and walk home with something in my headphones. When I got to the store, I would slump over the cash register, playing a CD of often inappropriate shopping music over the store's speakers. In the middle of this, my chemical romance as the Black Parade arrived. A dark, deliciously overblown, theatrical concept album about that which carries us into an imaginary afterlife. It was a massive album, 
in both sound and scope. I first loved it because of how the actual sounds filled headphones or a room. On a day off from the dollar store, with my father away at work, I would throw the album on and turn up the surround sound stereo, letting the chunky guitars chew at the framed and rattling photos on the wall. I insisted on falling for the music first, having never had an immense interest in concept albums, particularly ones that came out of the emo-slash-punk scenes, so many of which were filled with sprawl for the sake of sprawl, sacrificing narrative for hard-to-track, excessively emotional lyrics. I thought even my Chemical Romance's previous album, Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge, failed in its pursuit of concept while succeeding in the pursuit of music. Still, I believed in the Black Parade more than any other My Chemical Romance project before it because I believed in their willingness to be entirely certain of their mission at a time when I was without a mission, and also without certainty. They were, always, a bit outside of the scene. They played at the typical emo festivals and were covered by all the typical alternative music magazines, but they were a little surer of the emotional dark spaces they were navigating than their peers. Even at their most performative, which the Black Parade definitely is, there was something about My Chemical Romance's vision that felt comfortable, touchable, genuine. It was easy to be confident on The Black Parade, an album that unpacks a complete certainty, that we are all going to die, and none of us know what comes next. Act 2. I am not afraid to keep on living. I am not afraid to walk this world alone. Today, in 2016, death is a low hovering cloud that is always present. We know the dead and how they have died. We can sometimes watch the dead be killed. We can sometimes watch the best moments of their lives be replayed after they are gone, a reminder that they were once something other than buried. In this way, we can come to know the dead more efficiently than we know some of the living who occupy the same spaces we do. Yet even with all of this, exploring the interior of death's endless rooms is a far less virtuous endeavor than continually and somberly reacting to the endless river of graves. The Black Parade, in concept, is about a single character, the patient, who is suffering from cancer and facing down inevitable death. More than simply honing in on the patient's decay, My Chemical Romance frontman Gerard Way presents an operatic theme that revolves around the patient's slow passing into a life after death, carried by a parade. The idea is death coming to you in the form of your first and most fond memory, a flower opening slow in your front yard, a bright and colorful sunrise, or a slow marching parade of musicians and merrymakers walking with you to the gates in their darkest regalia. In retrospect, the Black Parade isn't as large of a leap for My Chemical Romance as it was billed as in 2006. It feels instead like a natural progression, the album where the band finally figured out their formula and how to cash in on it. It still has all of the musical, lyrical, and visual dramatic and aesthetic of a My Chemical Romance album, it's just turned up to a higher level. Where the sharpest growth exists is in their idea of concept. They are a band of storytellers who simply needed to dial in on a single small story and pull the narrative along, instead of falling into the trap of trying to connect too many threads at once. The Black Parade doesn't insist on resolution because it doesn't deal in the resolute. Death, yes, is inevitable. But that which we see before it arrives, the things that happen after the lights go out, is pure imagination. The work of the Black Parade was simply to bring it to life. And musically, visually, the life is a glorious one, the tinkling piano on Welcome to the Black Parade giving way to a shower of guitars ripped straight from late 70s arena rock, Gerard Way half-growling, 
half singing the same tense lyrics that dance along the lines of loneliness and desire. The video for the album's proper final song, Famous Last Words, is perhaps the album's finest moment, where the band, so committed to putting a bow on the album's immense mission, thrash and wail in front of a wall of fire. The parade float is burning at their backs, their marching outfits are worn out and covered in dirt, and the parade itself is gone. It is only them, alone, fighting to survive. They have, on their journey, become the patient and his fight. It is a dark video, one that speaks to sacrifice, both metaphorically and very literally, drummer Bob Breyer sustained third-degree burns on the back of his legs while filming, Gerard Way tore muscles in his foot and leg, and lead guitarist Ray Toro fractured his fingers, which were already blistered from the heat. Watching the video is as fascinating as it is agonizing. Toward the end there's a shot of rhythm guitarist Frank Iero on his knees. He lets his guitar slip out of his hands and breathes heavily while the fire rages at his back. His exhaustion, in that moment, feels real. It is brief, but it pushes through the screen and sinks into you. Even in the face of a spectacular album, this single video served as proof of a single band's commitment to something daring, as well as the cost of that commitment. To push so deep into the imagination of death that it becomes you. Act 3 Well, I think I'm gonna burn in hell, everybody burn the house right down. What I don't know, friends, is whether or not I believe in a life after this one that I've rattled around in for this brief and sometimes beautiful bunch of years. I know that I have thought about dying, like many of you likely have. When I have buried people I love and wondered if we would ever again sit across from each other at a table and laugh at an old joke. The uncertainty of an afterlife has also kept some of us here, at my youngest, most reckless and uncertain, I had moments where I thought life was done with me and I thought myself done with it. And, perhaps like some of you, I have remained here because of my comfort with the darkness I know and my fear of the darkness I do not. The afterlife is, most times, talked about as an achievement as opposed to a full-bodied existence. A place some of us get to enjoy, while the rest of us languish in a more terrifying place. I imagine the afterlife, and what carries you there, like Gerard Way does. I imagine my fondest memories gathering me in their palms and taking me to a place where I can join a discussion already in progress with all my pals in a room with an endless jukebox. And this is not groundbreaking. The great thing about an afterlife is that we've always been able to imagine it as the best possible place for us and our needs. The Black Parade is brilliant, though, because it complicates that. It finds small slivers of hope in the darkness of death and afterlife, yes, but the darkness is still darkness. It still sits, firmly, in the center of the experience of a slow and tedious demise. It does the work that all of our terrific afterlife fantasies don't, it reckons with the idea that a departure is most difficult because of who we leave behind. The song Cancer is stark, frank, and heartbreaking. The patient is in a hospital bed, cycling through his fading appearance, wishing to have his family close so that he can bid them goodbye. This is the part of death as art that isn't always noble, the idea that the death, before it is art, is still death. There is still a person leaving, leaving us behind. The Black Parade works because it doesn't imagine death as romantic. The patient goes, fighting, to the gates of whatever is on the other side. The album, for all of its wild and operatic fantasies, stays honest. When faced with all that is being left behind, even when death is inevitable, there are so many who will still fight against it. Act 4 
to unexplain the unforgivable. Drain all the blood and give the kids a show. Around my kitchen table this past Sunday night, in the company of some of my poet friends, we were having a stereotypical conversation, the type that people most likely imagine poets having, about what people are owed from our work. Who is owed our grief, and discussions of our grief, or how to carry everyone's grief within our own. If I tell a sad story, and then you, reader, tell me a sad story, and then your friend tells me a sad story, how do I take that with me and try to make something better out of it? As the conversation wore on, my friend Nora turned to the table and said, why do we think of grief as a collection of individual experiences anyway? Why don't we just instead talk about grief as a thing that we're all carrying and all trying to come to terms with? And I know, I know that may seem like what all of our missions may be, but I tell stories of the sadness of an individual death first and the complete sadness of loss second. I have, in a lot of ways, convinced myself that more people will feel whatever I am asking them to feel if there is a name or a history to go with the body. If I can unfold a row of photos and stories and name a life worthwhile to a stranger, they might connect better with what I'm saying. And that might be true in some cases, but what I'm learning more and more as I go on is that my grief isn't special beyond the fact that it's mine, that I know the inner workings of it more than I know yours. I imagine the Black Parade is a conversation about grief ahead of its time, dealing in the same tensions that I find myself wrestling with at a table with poets ten years after its release. The patient is only the patient. We arrive at his story as it ends and get only the details we need. He is forever nameless, without major signifiers. It is telling that by the end, by the visuals for famous last words, the patient is projected onto the band themselves. The message of a universal grief, yours and mine, that we can acknowledge together and briefly make lighter for each other, is in that moment. That which does not kill you may certainly kill someone else. That which does not kill you may form a fresh layer of sadness on the shoulders of someone you do not know, but who still may need to press their ear to the same thing that told you everything was going to be alright when you didn't feel like everything was going to be alright. The Black Parade doesn't treat the recesses of grief as a members-only party, where we show up to the door with pictures of all our dead friends and watch the gates open. It assumes, instead, that we've all seen the interior, and offers a small fantasy where the other side is promising. Act 5 Mama, we're all gonna die. Mama, we're all gonna die. The My Chemical Romance song that I return to the most is Fake Your Death. It's not on the Black Parade, it's a random track that showed up as the opener on their 2014 Greatest Hits album May Death Never Stop You. It's a good song, sitting firmly in the Danger Days canon of my chemical romance history. Gone are the echoing and heavy guitars and the stadium howl of Gerard Way. It's a simple tune, only piano and percussion, taking on a bit of a pep rally feel. I not only like it as a song but as a companion piece to the Black Parade. It's a good signifier of the band's end, equal parts heroic and reflective. On it, they sound both proud and defeated. I think, often, about what that album must have taken out of them. Gerard Way, in recent years, has said that he imagined the band being done after they finished the Black Parade tour. In between the Black Parade and the aforementioned Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, released in 2010, an entire album was recorded and scrapped. Danger Days is a fine album, it's a bit scattered thematically, not as focused or inspired, but it's a good collection of songs that I have grown to enjoy as much as any other My Chemical Romance album. 
the Black Parade celebrated its 10th anniversary in 2016 by releasing a weighty, sprawling box set. Demos, remastered songs, the works. The album still lives, but the conclusion of it remains, the patient is gone by the end of the Black Parade. We know this, and still, I think of the patient as I would a full, breathing character in a film. He drives the way I think about the band that was my chemical romance, even before they inserted him into their music. I wonder how long he was living in Gerard Way's head before he lived through the brief and glorious burst of an album that was the Black Parade. And I wonder, always, how art can immortalize even imaginary lives. Even though Fake Your Death signaled the end of the band, I think its message for an audience is one about what you can come back from. This, relying on the other definition of death, the one that does not take you from here but makes you feel like there is something weighing on you that you can't lift off. The song is, through that lens, about shedding old skin and stepping into a newer, lighter version of oneself. I listen to it now, on repeat, and I think of myself at 22, saddled with doubt in a room filled with my childhood memories, not knowing what to make of a life that hadn't gone as I'd planned. And I get it. Even if Gerard and the boys don't ever come back again, I get it all. I'm better for it. And I'm still here. Defiance, Ohio is the name of a band. And they are from Columbus, Ohio, which is confusing to folks on the East Coast when I tell them about the time they played for four hours at the Newport and it was raining outside but me and everyone I knew still locked arms after the show and walked down High Street singing Oh, Susquehanna. At the top of our lungs till some dive bar security threatened to kick our asses and he had 20 pounds on all of us combined in defiance, Ohio plays folk punk which pretty much means that sometimes they let a banjo or a cello crawl into bed with the screaming and all of their shows feel like they were made just for you and Jeff Hing plays guitar for them and makes singing look effortless and I guess it is kind of because all of their fans know all of the words to their songs and they sing them so loud it's like the band doesn't even have two and their fans are often cloaked in tattoos and trucker hats and ironic hand-me-down shirts from old car garages or little league baseball teams and they jump on each other's backs at shows and scream in each other's faces and it's, like, Familial I guess, or I guess it is most times and one time at a show I saw a dude with some straight edge tattoos knock out some dude who had an entire school of fish inked on his arm and so okay. It's certainly not always familial and when the guy hit the floor, Ryan Woods put down his bass and said, Hey, listen, don't come to a defiance, Ohio show and fight. Cut that shit out. Hold hands with each other or some shit which is funny to say coming from a band that put the song I don't want solidarity if it means holding hands with you on their first album, which was a fine album but it had a little too much acoustic noise for my taste and defiance, Ohio is a real town in Ohio and the band is not from there and anyone who is from there either leaves or dies and in the summer of 1794, General Mad Anthony Wayne ordered a fort be built at the confluence of the Maumee and Auglaise rivers in Ohio and when it was done, a soldier from Kentucky named Charles Scott stood in front of the fort and said I defy the English, Indians, and all the devils of hell to take this and that's how the fort was called Fort Defiance and how a whole city spilled around it by 1904 and that city was also named Defiance and the site of the fort is a library now. Or at least that's what I've been told and me and my pals would drive up to Defiance every now and then when we were old enough for adventure but too young to properly wallow in the depths of Columbus's scene and we would go to Bud's Diner and flirt with the waitresses and sometimes we would drive down the back road screaming the words to some punk dirge out of the open windows of a car we had to have back in someone's parents driveway by morning and sometimes we would take out mailboxes with a baseball bat and once a man ran out of a house with a confederate flag hanging from the porch and he chased us down the road calling us outside of all of 
our names and my buddy Derek said he swore he saw the man holding a shotgun and so we stuck to the fears of our own city from that point on and the second defiance, band, album came out in 2006 and it was called The Great Depression and it nearly started an honest revolution in my little corner of heartbreak and I barely made it through 2006 cause we had to bury Tyler and Marissa too and in the song Condition 1111, there are the lyrics I remember in the kitchen when you told me your grandma died. That's when I realized it gets worse and it does, oh it does and it is really something to really remember that you can actually be alone and so when Jeff sings here's to this year I never thought I'd make it through I put my arms around someone else who did make it and swayed along as the clock swung itself past midnight at the end of December and I saw Defiance, band, in another sweaty room in 07 and everyone there was sad and no one was into fighting that night and the band let the cello and the banjo strings sit thick and heavy in the air that night and no one seemed to mind and it's like if we all try hard enough in the same room. Everyone can remember what it is to lose somebody at the same time in defiance, town, is awash with heroin now and I see it on the news. A man nodding off in a car and two people overdosing in the same night and 27 people dragged to the town jail in a drug bust and it is the kind of town that will hold you under its tongue until it is ready to swallow you whole and they found the body of a kid who used to come up to Columbus for punk shows in an abandoned defiance, town, apartment and his body was surrounded by spent lighters and he was at the defiance, band, show where they played grandma song and everyone put up their cell phone lights but the true punks put up lighters and waved them when ryan sang do you come from a dead people and defiance town is dying off like all of ohio's other towns that feed the bigger cities in both food and those who escape and in the defiance town paper i read a story about the heroin epidemic and the headline said we will not let this destroy us and above it is a picture of a mother pulling her young daughter's frail body close to her chest in front of a worn down house and in her eyes is a determination and in her eyes she is daring all the devils of hell to come and take what is hers and i thought about what it must be like to name yourself after a town that has become a ghost factory and play songs about surviving all manner of haunting and defiance band hasn't made a record in six years and the last one sounded like they were trying to get out of each other's way and I heard they played in some Indiana dive last spring and I heard the pit was wicked and later that week there was another drug bust in defiance, town, and there are times when destruction is not as much of a choice as we think it is and man, I barely made it out of 2006 alive and in the defiance, band, song O, Susquehanna. The chorus that everyone sings goes and I wonder, what do they do with the bodies, and I wonder, what do they do with the bodies, and I wonder. This story never really had a point. It's just a lull, a skip in the record. We are addresses in ghost towns. We are old wishes that never came true. We are hand grenades. We are all gods, we are all monsters. Pete Wentz.